This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. This episode signals the start of a new season for the podcast, and it will be following the academic year more closely. This seems more or less ideal, considering that most of our guests will be academics, and a major theme that we'll be exploring is the relationship between the scholar and the practitioner. One of the commitments of this podcast has been to contrast the anti-intellectualism that defines much of uh, American culture, and therefore much of European culture, in particular in its relationship with the topic of spirituality and spiritual practice, notions of enlightenment, liberation, freedom, and so forth, many of which will be topics that we bring to our discussions with different academics. Now, we've tried to choose academics who cover a wide range of different disciplines, but who are all connected to Buddhist studies in one way or another. We have younger guests and older guests, current academics, retirees, and those finishing off PhDs. And one of the reasons for this is to try and ensure that the variety of conversations we have is sufficient enough and stimulating enough to bring about new types of conversation or to bring conversations out of academia into the public sphere in a way that's interesting, stimulating and relevant to practitioners. Our first guest in this new season is Charles S. Priebisch. Many of you will be familiar with Charles. He held the Charles Red Chair in Religious Studies at Utah State University from 2007 until 2010, and he also served as the director of the Religious Studies Program. This followed on from more than 35 years on the faculty of the Pennsylvania State University, and he now has an emeritus status in both universities. He's also published dozens of books and nearly 100 scholarly articles and chapters. His books, Monastic Discipline and Luminous Passage, The Practice and Study of Buddhism in America, are considered classics in Buddhist studies. He's also the leading pioneer in the establishment of the study of Western Buddhism as a sub-discipline in Buddhist studies as a whole. Dr. Prebish has been busy in many different areas. One of them is as the co-founder of the Buddhist section of the American Academy of Religion and as co-founder of the Journal of Buddhist Ethics. Charles has an interesting range of opinions on the past and current state of the academic study of Buddhism, and also some interesting stories to tell, whether it be about Chogyam Trungpa or other early pioneers in the transmission of Buddhism from the East to the West. We talk about the current situation, past situation in the Buddhist landscape in America and beyond. We also talk about the scandals in Buddhist communities and the most recent one in the Shambhala organization. Enjoy. Thank you for coming on. Um, we've got some great questions to ask you today and uh, I look forward to, to hearing your views and opinions on many of them. But let's uh, start off with a quick question about you. I like to ask academics in particular whether they actually consider themselves to be Buddhists. So I'll give you two questions all at once. The first one, do you consider yourself a Buddhist? And do you have a personal practice um, that you've been following over the years? Yes, I do consider myself a Buddhist. I converted to Buddhism in the fall of 1965 at the Washington Buddhist Vihara in Washington, D.C., which is a Theravada organization. I was a uh, senior in college, and I was taking my first course in Buddhism 
And it resonated so aggressively with me that my professor referred me to the Washington Buddhist Vihara. And when I went down there, everything seemed to coordinate for me. So I, at that point, I took refuge, which is one of the two things you do to become a Buddhist in that tradition. And I agreed to follow the five vows of the laity, not to lie, kill, steal, take intoxicants, or have illicit sex. So I, I did that at that point, And my teacher set me out on a a Buddhist meditation practice called Satipatthana, the setting up of mindfulness, and he instructed me to do four hours per day of sitting meditation. Wow. Which wow. Was, very, was very difficult for me because I was a senior in college. I had a girlfriend. I liked sports and so forth. But when I said this was problematic, um, he said only two words to me. He said, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> so in other words, I do it his way or I don't do it at all. Yeah. And yeah. I, I did that. And sometime after that, he returned to Sri Lanka. Um, he had cancer and he died. And I continued to do that meditation practice for almost a decade, almost 10 full years. Um, in 1974, I was invited to Naropa Institute, which was an organization started by Chogyam Trungpa, who was an expatriate Tibetan Lama. And in my first private meeting with, with Trungpa Rinpoche, Within 30 seconds of, of sitting across the desk from him, he said to me, Charles, I need to tell you something about your practice. And I thought, this is odd because you really don't know anything about my practice. All you've seen is my curriculum, Vita. Mm. And he said, I know that you sit four hours a day of sitting meditation. And I know that you're very effective at closing out the world and working inside your head. And he said, I think you need to stop sitting. Wow. <laughs> Which I thought was very shocking from him because yeah. that night he was going to teach 600 students how to do basic mm. sitting practice. He said, I think what you need to do is you need to get your practice off your cushion and out into the world and manifest the wisdom and compassion that you've learned in your practice. And he said, I'm sure that at times you will feel almost like a loss of faith or insecure. And he said, that's the time when I think it's important for you to return to your cushion and sit. And as soon as you've restored that faith, then you need to take your practice back out into the world. So I have found that actually to be a very good diagnosis of what my situation was then. And I did that for a very long time. I've integrated little bits of other kinds of practice in, into my own Buddhist practice. Along the way, I became very good friends with a, a Zen Roshi uh, in the United States named John Daidu Luri who ran uh, Zen Mountain Monastery. Mm -hmm. And um, I was a frequent, a frequent visitor there. He often had me come up to do lectures for his community. And when I was there, I would do Zazen with them. I think that was problematic for them because I didn't sit in quite the same way they did. But I learned a great deal from Dido. And I would say, as a result, my practice has, has been sort of all over the place. But still, it's, it's still based on the Satipatthana practice. It's still based on trying to manifest Buddhist ethical practice. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've done that now for over 50 years. Wow. Wow. So would you say that there are current challenges in your practice that are particular to this uh, phase of your life? I, I wouldn't say the, the, the challenges to my practice involve my own situation, uh, either in terms of concentration or ethical concerns or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, my concern in, in doing Buddhist practice is what I, what I see in the United States on a regular basis is something that in some cases is disturbing to me and I don't think is consistent with Buddhist teaching. And I suppose in, in terms of, of taking that practice out into the world, I, I sometimes comment on that. It, it's interesting that in, in 1975, I think it was 74 or 75, we had a visit at Penn State from a very well-known Tibetan Buddhist nun named uh, Sister Palmo, mm -hmm. Kichuk Palmo. She came here because she, she knew my predecessor at Penn State, who was named Garma Chenchi Chang. And at the end of her visit at Penn State, she asked if any of my students would like to take refuge before she left. And some of them did in her hotel room, sort of a, a makeshift place. And when everyone was getting ready to leave, as I walked toward the door, she said, you have to stay. And I said, why do I have to say? And she said, because I know that you have had the thought of enlightenment, bodhicitta, and I don't know how she knew that. And she said, I think at this point you are not going to leave this room until you take bodhisattva vow. Hmm. So she okay. made me take bodhisattva vow, may I gain complete perfect enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. And she gave me a new Buddhist name. 
she gave me a Buddhist name, Karma Shirab um, Ningpo, which means heart of wisdom, which I thought was rather funny applied to me, but she thought that was okay. So there is kind of a, a, a mix in my in my practice, but but in view of the Bodhisattva practice, I've been oftentimes outspoken when I see things happening in Buddhist practice that, that strike me as inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Would you describe this type of experience you've had then as hybrid to some degree and perhaps characteristic of American Buddhism as a whole? Yes, I think uh, I'm sure as we go on with this conversation, we'll talk about American Buddhism as a whole. But I think hybrid is a a fair word. Okay. Okay. So many Buddhist study scholars are also practitioners, and I, I think that continues to be true to this day. I think it's something that was once upon a time frowned upon or considered perhaps negative. Um, yes. What challenges do you think emerge for those who study Buddhism academically and therefore presumably as objectively as possible, yet hold a deep personal commitment to Buddhism as a personal practice or even as a religion? Okay, uh, this goes back a very long way for me. Uh, when I came to Penn State in 1971, which was my very first teaching job as a, a young, newly minted PhD, when people asked me if I was Buddhist, I said no, mm. because I was afraid that being here, uh, especially in Pennsylvania, that they would find my Buddhist practice problematic. And especially so because the department that I became a part of offered a PhD on religion and American culture. Mm. And religion and American culture to them meant Judaism or Christianity. So I was afraid that if I told them I was Buddhist, that it would impact my salary increases, would impact my chance for promotion, my chance for tenure. So for the first two years, I was very quiet about that. It turns out that shortly after that, I got an internal grant to go and visit some scholars who were contributing to a book I was editing called Buddhism of Modern Perspective. It was a, a textbook uh, with contributions from, from individuals, all of whom had been students of Richard Robinson at the University of Wisconsin. It was almost like a minor festschrift for him. And one of the people I visited was a, a wonderful scholar of Chinese Buddhism named Francis Cook who taught at the University of California, Riverside. And at the end of my first day visiting Frank Cook, he said, would you like a martini? And I said, no, I don't drink martinis. And he said, well, he said, this is the only thing I do that compromises my Buddhist practice. And at that point, I didn't even know he was Buddhist. And it turns out he had a Buddhist name, Dojin, and he was a disciple of um, Mezumi Roshi at the Los Angeles Zen Center. And I noticed over the next few days that, that Frank was so comfortable and at ease with him being Buddhist, I decided that when I went back to Penn State that I should come out as a Buddhist. Mm. So when I came back, I had a brief conversation with my department head, and I said, I think now after a couple of years you should know that I'm Buddhist. And he smiled at me because he knew my ethnic background was Jewish. And he said, does this mean to say that you're Buddhist? <laughs> and then he laughed. Uh, but what was very clear is that after that time, he didn't take my academic teaching seriously. He thought that somehow when I went into class, I would invariably try to force Buddhism on my opponents, that I would be some sort of guru type. Um, and he said that. He said, I bet you have a guru mentality. Hmm. And at that point, I didn't know what a guru mentality was. So I found that in the beginning years, it was problematic for me. And I found that as I went to conferences, usually the American Academy of Religion or the Association of Asian Studies, and met with my Buddhist studies colleagues, I found that, like I had done, they were very, very reluctant to reveal their Buddhist practice or their Buddhist identity. But it turns out that by the the 1990s, or just fast forward a couple of decades, it became very clear to me on the basis of what I learned at going to these meetings that probably 50% of all the Buddhist studies scholars in the United States were quietly and secretly Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point that I thought it was appropriate to coin the term scholar-practitioner. So that phrase comes back to me in the 1990s. And I found that in the time since 1990, more people have outed as Buddhists uh, with less recourse against them. Some still are afraid. But for the most part, as Buddhism has grown in the United States to the point where there are probably more than six million practitioners now, it's not as uncomfortable for people to say that they were Buddhist. And I think that's happening 
more and more. And I would say that probably more than 50% of the Buddhist study scholars now. Yeah, it, it always seems strange to me that somebody could engage academically with material like Buddhism and not end up in some way changing and becoming some form of practitioner, even if it's just intellectual. Um, do you think then that, you know, the contemporary landscape of academia in terms of Buddhist studies continues to have the sort of percentage that you talk about? Do you think there's a sort of change in attitude towards um, those academics who are also practitioners? And I mean, one of the concerns I have, I think, is I don't know if it's really a concern, but I wonder to what degree it becomes capable for somebody who has a deep, meaningful personal commitment to these practices to then go and study them in a way that may be, let's say, well, that would perhaps be more critical in a way. Uh, I wonder if being having a personal investment means that some academics step back from the more critical engagement with Buddhist materials. I think you can always find some that do that, but I think that number is very minimal. Mm. I think the people who are scholar practitioners understand the difference between the two, and when they step inside the classroom, they are clearly scholars, and they do not try to let their own commitment to Buddhism influence or impact what they say in, in the classroom. What, what also seems to be the case, though, which is in a sense disappointing to me, is I think there's less impact or less uh, possibilities for people to gain serious uh, PhDs in Buddhist studies. For example, when when I went through the University of Wisconsin, the Buddhist studies PhD program was, was very virulent and it was exciting and it lasted. Um, just a few weeks ago, I happened to be back in Madison, Wisconsin visiting and the Buddhist studies program is now gone. There is no more PhD program in Buddhist studies at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, and places where you can get a a PhD that has an emphasis on Buddhism are becoming more minimal. So I think you're getting fewer and fewer colleagues. And I think part of the problem is they're recognizing that it's harder to find teaching positions because the, the academic market in religious studies is so aggressive and so competitive that it, people are finding other, other disciplines to choose rather than Buddhist studies or even, even religious studies. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So what stands out for you as most pertinent in your analysis of Buddhism, uh, both in terms of theory and in terms of practice? And, you know, how do you think Buddhism still continues to be important in what it provides in terms of ideas and religious or spiritual practices? Well, that, that's not an easy question to answer. I would say that in the United States, especially, where we're becoming so much more multiracial than we were, it's hard to engage in, in any profession, academic or otherwise, without meeting people from a variety of different ethnicities and religious traditions. So I think the impact that one can gain by being aware of the variety of religious traditions is significant in terms of, of making one's life more meaningful and valuable to them. Uh, as far as my concern for why I focused on American Buddhism, I think to some degree it was by accident. Um, when when I came to Penn, Penn State, my focus was on the early Indian monastic tradition, particularly on the Vinaya and the sectarian movement. And that, that's where almost the better part of my first decade here uh, was committed to publishing in, in that area. But because Penn State had a program that offered a PhD on religion and American culture, I realized that if I was going to make any contribution to the program, I needed to know something about the Buddhists in America. And this, this came to a highlight for me where early on in my career, a young student came up to me after class one day and he said, Professor Priebisch, can I ask you, what do you think of Philip Kaplow Roshi? And at that point, the only thing I knew about Philip Kaplow Roshi is that he had written a very popular book called The Three Pillars of Zen which people sometimes walked around with it in their back pocket the, the same way they walk around with, uh, or they walked around with beatnik books in their pocket or some of the popular novels of today. And I started to give him kind of an exegesis of what I thought of the book, and he cut me off and he said, no, I don't mean to be disrespectful. He said, but I'm a big boy and I can read the book and decide whether I like it. I want to know what do you think of Philip Kaplow as a Roshi? And I realized at that point, I didn't think anything of Philip Kaplow other than the fact that he was an author who wrote a pretty neat book. And I thought I'd best find out something about Buddhists in the United States. Well, in 1971, where would you look? We didn't have any internet. 
We didn't have any easy means of communication. And as it turns out, one of the members of my department was Japanese American. He was not Buddhist, but he was Japanese American. And he suggested that I contact an organization called Buddhist Churches of America, which was located in San Francisco. And I did that and discovered that they had over 60 Buddhist temples, mostly on the West Coast. They were a Pure Land, Jodo Shinshu tradition. And they gave me some clues as to people who I could call, which I did. And I also used something that would be outrageous to do today. I used the phone book. <laughs> I, would, I would look at the yellow pages and go to churches and look down for Buddhists. And if I found a Buddhist organization, I would call them and ask them to send me information. And over a period of a couple of years, I started gathering all this information and throwing it in a file cabinet with the intention that maybe one day I'd pull all this together. When Trungpa Rinpoche invited me to Naropa Institute, I thought, now I have a perfect opportunity to be around a lot of Buddhists in America, and I can find out more, and maybe I can get this project going. So I took all the files in my file cabinet and dumped it in my car, and we went to Boulder, Colorado. And I happened to meet up with a, a wonderful young journalist named Rick Fields. I don't know if you're familiar with him. The name rings um, a bell. Rick Fields wrote one of the early books on Buddhism in America called How the Swans Came to the Lake. Ah, yes. And right. he and I discovered that we each wanted to write the first book on Buddhism in America. And it turns out that neither of us did, because a, a woman who was a retired psychology professor from a small university in Iowa named Emma McCoy Lehman had written the first book called Buddhism in America. And um, I guess I can say this now after the fact. It was a terrible book, so we were both <laughs> glad that she beat us to the punch. But Rick and I kind of had this little friendly competition to see which one would get their book out first. And I got mine out in 1979. This came out in, in 1981. And I would say they each reflected who we were. His book re reads so much better than mine because he was a journalist. He, writing was his living. Mine was more academically sound than his. Uh, but at that point, it became clear that I had discovered there was so much more Buddhism developing in America than I ever thought. A lot of it emerging from, from the beat movement and from people who were looking for a safe alternative to drugs. Because in the early 70s, there was so much emphasis on, on doing psychoactive drugs. And people began to realize how dangerous that was. So they thought meditation was a safer alternative. And... They were, they were looking at Buddhism, especially because in 1965, the United States changed their immigration law and allowed immigrants from, from Asia, war-torn Asia then, to come to the United States. So it was beginning to grow. In 1970, when I first started looking around, there were probably not more than 100,000 Buddhists in the United States, and they were almost all Japanese or Chinese American. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a, 50 years down the road, it's a, it's a totally different circumstance. And as it turned out, uh, my friendship with Rick Fields kept my interest in American Buddhism going after that. But it also, in a sense, got me into trouble for the first time. Uh, I presume you're familiar with the Buddhist popular magazine named Tricycle. Sure. And when it first came out in 1991, in its very second edition, the editor, Helen Torkoff, wrote an editorial in which she said that most of the influence of Buddhism in America came from well-educated, white, middle-class Americans. Mm. And as it turned out, uh, a Japanese psychology professor, a Japanese-American psychology professor, who was a Buddhist priest, um, taught at, I think, Evergreen State College, named Ryo Imamura, was absolutely incensed by her editorial, and he wrote a letter to the editor. Ryo came from an interesting background because he grew up in Berkeley. And his father was the minister at the Berkeley Buddhist Church, which happens to be a Jodo Shinshu church, but that's the Buddhist church that all the beats hang out at. So Allen Ginsberg and Kerouac and all the others were often in his living room. And he used to jokingly say that he kind of grew up mildly hating them because on Saturdays he wanted to watch cartoons and he didn't want to listen to all the Buddhist talk from these beats with his, with his father. But uh, he wrote this editorial comment on the editorial, and he sent it to Helen Torkoff, and she refused to publish it, which is very unusual. And at that point, Rick Fields, who I hadn't talked to in a couple of years, called me on the phone and asked me if I would be willing to write an editorial for Tricycle that, that talked about the, the conflict between Asian American Buddhism and converts, yeah. and that they would offer me money to do this. 
And I think they asked me to do this because they thought that I would favor Helen Torkoff's position. So I said, sure. And the first person I called was Rio Imamura. And we had a wonderful conversation. Um, and it actually turns out that 25 years later, Rio and I are still wonderful friends. Uh, he's retired now, too, and lives in Toronto. So we have communication all the time. Um, but I wrote what I thought was a very, very balanced piece for Tricycle. And it was the first time that I used the, the term that has gotten me into trouble called the two Buddhisms theory. In my 1979 book, I had mentioned two Buddhisms, but not in that way. It had nothing to do with ethnicity. The two Buddhisms I talked about were traditional Buddhist practice and the kind of far out wacky stuff that the Beats were doing. When Rick asked me to do this, this editorial, I reinterpreted the two Buddhisms theory and said, yes, we have two Buddhisms in America. One is that of Asian Americans and one is that of American converts, the vast overwhelming majority of whom are Euro-American, white American, almost no blacks and almost no Hispanics. And I wrote a very, very balanced piece and sent it off. And Helen Twarkoff refused to publish my editorial. Oh, really? Yeah, they paid me a kill fee not, not to publish it. And for me, that sort of lit the fuse that kept me going on American Buddhism. And I pursued dealing with the various groups on each side of the, the issue. Um, as it turned out, what I saw between 1970 and 1995, in that 25-year period, I probably visited more Buddhist groups in North America than anyone on the planet, certainly more Buddhist groups than the Dalai Lama. And everything I saw at that point was just like that. It was either an Asian American Buddhist community or a Euro-American Buddhist community with almost no blacks or Hispanics. And for me, those were the two Buddhists. Shortly after I did this, a, a very fine scholar named Paul Nummer came out with a, a, a book in which he called them Asian immigrant Buddhists and American convert Buddhists. And between 1970 and 1995, that was a very clear um, definition of what, what was happening. In 19, around 1995, something rather different began to occur. Buddhists started talking to each other. I wouldn't go as far as to say it was great ecumenicism, but it was definitely a sense of talking to each other and sharing their input, sharing their practices, sharing their ideas, because obviously there's a great deal of difference between Theravada Buddhist communities, say, and Vajrayana Buddhist communities, or between Vajrayana Buddhist communities and Mahayana communities. And at that point, shortly thereafter, um, a very young and now brilliant young Buddhist scholar um, named Jeff Wilson came up with a new term for what was happening in American Buddhism. He called it hybridity. The Buddhist communities were starting to share resources. And in fact, he wrote a book not too many years ago called Dixie Dharma about Buddhism in Richmond, Virginia, in which several Buddhist organizations shared the same building. And they met at different times but they shared their ideas back and forth. And this has begun to happen more and more and, and more so that there is a sense of Buddhist community. In fact, I remember not, not too many years ago, maybe less than 10 years ago, I went back to Cleveland for a visit, which is where I went to undergraduate school. And two Buddhist communities that had been distinct, very different Buddhist communities, one white that was all Zen and one Jodo Shinshu, which was all Japanese American, now shared the same building. So this hybridity was really having an impact on American Buddhism. Now, the tricky part for me, and the part that gets me into trouble, is that this two Buddhisms theory has caused an enormous tirade of critique in the Buddhist studies academic community, as well as the practitioner's community. person who, for more than 20 years, was my very best friend in Buddhist studies, this is a magnificent Buddhist scholar named Jan Nadir. I don't know if you've ever heard that name. Yes, I have. Yes. Uh, I, I would, despite the fact that I wouldn't call us friends any longer, I would go on the record as saying that I think Jan Nadir is the most brilliant Buddhist scholar of the last half century. She's just utterly brilliant. We wrote an article together in the late 70s that, that clearly helped define the, the beginning understanding of Indian Buddhist sectarianism. In fact, she shared a home with my family for that summer in which we wrote the article. But when I gave my first paper on 
two Buddhisms at an American Academy of Religions meeting. As soon as I got done and, and asked whether there were questions, her hand went up in the audience and I called on her because I was sure as my best friend she would say something great. And she told me that she disagreed with everything I said, that she had a three Buddhism theory, which she called import Buddhism, export Buddhism, and the third Buddhism she called baggage Buddhism, or the Buddhism that Asian Americans brought to the United States with them. The things she said were not really very much different than what I said, but we had now two Buddhisms versus three Buddhisms, and it, it really kind of put a wedge between Jan and myself. And as a result, everybody has now started attacking one or the other or, or both of us. A young woman scholar, good friends with Jeff Wilson, named Shannon Hickey, who is a Buddhist practitioner, her Buddhist name, curiously, is Wacko. Um, and yeah, I think that too. Uh, <laughs> has come out with an article called Two Buddhisms, Three Buddhisms, and Racism, where she says that my two Buddhism theory is wrong, Jan's three Buddhism theory is wrong, but she doesn't offer anything really alternative that makes it more sensible. And I've actually said to some of these people, why don't you just stop whining about what's wrong with these? I acknowledge that the two Buddhism theory is not any longer operative. It was very accurate from 1970 to 1975, but now things have changed and it's not operative. And the hybridity theory was good, but the hybridity theory is now becoming somewhat outmoded. And maybe we should try to deal with new ways of looking at American Buddhism. Well, Jeff Wilson, who came up with the hybridity theory, came up with a new idea, which, which is very interesting as well. He said, and he, I think he was the first person to really point this out, that the Buddhism that's practiced in America in cities and urban areas is very much different than the Buddhism that's practiced in rural areas. In fact, many years ago, um, a Buddhist practitioner named Gary Ray said, there's nothing lonelier than to be a Buddhist in Alabama. And I think what he was saying, without the internet, if you were in Alabama and a Buddhist, you were by yourself. You were a Sangha of one. And I think Jeff Wilson began to notice this, and he said that what's changing this regionalism, that was the phrase he used, regionalism, uh, is that city practitioners of Zen probably have more in common with practitioners in other cities who do something other than Zen than they do with Zen practitioners in rural areas because mm -hmm. there's so much difference between city and rural life. Right, right. And it, yeah, and curiously, um, about 10 years ago, we were both at a conference together in Berkeley at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, and I came up to Jeff and I said, you know, I think this is a brilliant idea that you've had with regionalism, but I think what you're going to find like the two Buddhism theory, because the internet has changed the way we communicate so much, city Buddhists are very much in contact with rural Buddhists, and rural Buddhists are very much in contact with city Buddhists. So there's not that much difference between somebody living in a small town in Iowa and someone living in New York City, because they communicate through the internet. And I said, I think at some point, regionalism is going to become outmoded in the same way that my two Buddhism theory was outmoded. And Jeff smiled at me and said, it won't happen. I, really and I thought that was rather, rather <laughs> arrogant. But, yeah. you know, I suppose yeah. when you have ideas that are pretty flashy, you, you, can, you, can, you can say that. But sure. I think what's clearly happening now is Buddhism in America is so diverse with every sectarian affiliation of every Buddhist major jhana in, in the world that we're beginning to see changes that no one is really in, a, in, a, in an accurate way trying to understand. And I think what happens with a lot of the young scholars is rather than trying to understand it and move us forward by saying these older scholars have given us the tools with which to move forward, they think the proper way to build their career is by climbing over the backs of their predecessors and simply attacking them and attacking them and attacking them, which they do a lot. And in some cases, um, Recently, there was an article published by a, a, a young Chinese woman scholar whose name I will not mention, but it was published in, in the Journal of Global Buddhism, which is an online journal, which I started in 1999, which basically says that my two Buddhism theory is racist, that it's wrong, that it's inaccurate, and she doesn't say anything different than what I had already said. And it made me wonder, 
have you even read what I've said? But if so, you clearly misunderstood it. And I think this is happening with a lot of scholars. So I think we need to take a grip and see how we can move it forward. The person that I think has moved things forward the most is a young woman named Christine Walters, who said, instead of talking about two Buddhisms or racism or whatever, maybe a better term would be to talk about denominationalism, to talk about the various sectarian differences in Buddhism and leave the ethnicity out of it and simply talk about pure land Buddhism because pure land Buddhism is now Chinese American and Japanese American and Euro American and Black American and then maybe talk about the various Vajrayana sectarian groups because they include all these people and we can better understand Buddhism through understanding its denominations. And I don't think anybody but Christine Walters has picked up on this, but it's an utterly brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you were describing before makes me think that uh, it's a sign of the fact that Buddhism has become more integrated into wider society. And uh, in your description, you were, in a sense, talking about social, cultural behaviors amongst other religions, too. You know, and now that Buddhism is now at the point in America, at least, where it's sharing those same characteristics of differences between, you know, backgrounds, history, ethnicity, between, you know, the countryside and the city and so forth. So, yeah, it's all interesting. Um yeah, the issue of race is uh, it's sort of come back as a hot topic in wider society, hasn't it? So I'm not surprised that, that some Buddhist scholars are certainly um, jumping on that as, you know, the, 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 the must topic, the topic that must be dealt with. Um, and I think it's interesting. I wonder to what degree this integration that you describe between convert Buddhism and, you know, first, second, third generation Asian import Buddhism is is moving forward. I know that um, there have been articles that I've read over the last five years that have talked about the fact that there there tends to still be quite a strong division between, let's say, Japanese, Chinese Buddhists and then white Jewish Christian European heritage uh, Americans or, you know, as a European, I should add Europeans, and the fact that they're still not necessarily integrated to such a great degree. Um, I don't know if you've seen any changes in that direction of late or whether you think that that's true. I think we've moved forward, but but slowly. And some of it may be, may be even locational. And I may be going out too far at saying this, but I think in, in some of the cities that I visited that have a very high uh, Asian-American population, I think Buddhism is, is very robust. In some places where, where there isn't, the number of, of uh, what, what number calls American convert Buddhists is, is smaller. But I think we are moving forward in, in a, a good and proper direction with more understanding and, and more tolerance in, in each direction. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because for me, there's such a karmic connection. As it turns out, um, my mentor in graduate school was a magnificent professor named Richard Robinson. He was maybe the foremost scholar of Buddhism in the world at that time. And it turns out that even though he was teaching at the University of Wisconsin, he was from Alberta as a young man. And it turns out that he learned his very first Buddhism from a, a Buddhist minister who was the father of someone named Leslie Kawamura. Leslie Kawamura was a professor of Buddhist studies at the University of Calgary. He was probably the best-known Canadian Buddhist scholar uh, at, at that time. And it turns out that the other place in the United States where you could, you could get the best education uh, academically in Buddhist studies was at Harvard under a person named Masatoshi Nagatomi, who also came from Alberta, and his father had been the teacher of Kawamura's father. So there is this weird connection, and it turns out that that for many years, Leslie Kawamura was my best friend. So I have this wonderful connection with this Asian Buddhist community in, in Alberta, Calgary, and, and Lethbridge, and, and my teacher, uh, Richard Robinson. And I, I, I just cannot help but think that there has to be some sort of karmic connection there. <laughs> Although my okay. friends would probably think I was crazy. Uh, yeah. Which well, may be true soon. <laughs> well, I shan't comment on that. <laughs> so um, let me take a slight change of direction. Um, thinking about, you know, the, 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 the length of time that you've been involved with Buddhism and you've, you've studied it and thought about it and wrote, written about it, you know, we might say that much of the idealism that, that characterized earlier Western engagement with Buddhism has waned somewhat, and that might be partially reflected in the discussion uh, we had just before. 
about integration and developments in the way scholars view Buddhism and the way perhaps you know Americans think about Buddhism themselves. Um, do you see a maturation in the way Westerners approach Buddhism? And do you think there's any work or change that's still necessary in the way Westerners approach Buddhism? It depends on how you define maturation. Uh, one of the things I would say is that the, the people who became Buddhist studies scholars, whether they were Buddhists or not, um, from my generation of scholars, which goes back to the 1960s and 70s, basically focused their research on mainly dealing with Buddhist textual resources. That meant translating text and interpreting text and so forth. And they did far less with things like the Buddhist ethical tradition or Buddhist historical concerns. They, they, they took text and they translated them from Sanskrit, from Pali, Chinese from Tibetan, and they tried to do an interpretive understanding of Buddhism that way. There have been a few Buddhist scholars since, um, particularly people like Jose Cabezon, uh, who teaches uh, in California, who actually spent years as a as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, who have indicated that uh, what's happening now is many of the people who are doing Buddhist studies are starting to see Buddhism in terms of things other than just doing um, work with the language training they had and trying to understand Buddhism in terms of a religious tradition, how people live, what their ethical life is like, how they put Buddhist ideals into practice, what, what, those, what those texts really meant for us, rather than simply presenting the translation and doing those kinds of studies. And in that sense, I think you could say that Buddhist studies has, has matured a, a great deal, because there are people who are dealing with, with that kind of material. Um, it turns out, for example, my, my best friend in the world, a Buddhist studies scholar, is a person named Damien Keown, who's retired from Goldsmiths College, University of London. Um, and he is probably the foremost Buddhist scholar in the world on Buddhist ethics. And he has made a, a miraculous career out of helping Buddhists understand how their ethical life factors into, into Buddhist practice, how, how that deals with all of the issues that fall under the umbrella of, of ethics. And as a result, his work has inspired lots and lots of other people to, to deal with Buddhist ethical issues. Um, the place that I think we're still lacking is that I think many of the American convert Buddhist community members, irrespective of whether they're Asian, white, black, Hispanic, or whatever, tend to see uh, Buddhist practice almost exclusively as meditational. And maybe they they carry with them an American arrogance that suggests that because we're Americans and we're so smart, we can master anything in a short period of time. So they go to a Buddhist Zen center, and they think that they'll be able to master this uh, Zen stuff and a couple of weeks sitting on their cushion and they'll get Satori and that'll be fine. And they find out rather quickly that that's that's not the case. And I think they put too much emphasis on Buddhist meditation. And that has filtered down into the the larger society that's non-Buddhist under the guise of what's today called the mindfulness movement. Um, Some of the mindfulness practice was was begun by John Kabat-Zinn, who used used mindfulness training at, at... University of Massachusetts hospitals, and it helped people with high blood pressure. It helped people with high cholesterol. It helped people with with emotional problems. And I think in the beginning, he didn't tell them they were doing Buddhist practice. He told them they were doing mindfulness, but they were basically doing a practice that in Buddhism has become known as Vipassana. And as a result, I think the mindfulness movement has expanded out of Buddhism, and you can go into any community. I went to a lecture on Penn State's campus yesterday, and the person who gave the lecture uh, was talking about something Hindu, but he, he eventually swung around to talking about how important yoga was, and that yoga could be integrated into the larger mindfulness community. So people are, are seeing uh, Buddhism as moving out of its religious component and into a, a kind of uh, holistic practice that people can do to help with their emotional health, with their physical health, and so forth. So I think we have I think we have a ways to go in that regard. 
So what's your, your opinion on secular Buddhism? Do you know a lot about that? Do you have much of an opinion on it? Because they seem to be, you know, seeking to establish a different kind of relationship between, let's say, the, the Western intellectual tradition, practice tradition, and Buddhism. And they, as far as I'm aware, they include aspects of Buddhism, such as ethics, in a way that, you know, is perhaps left out from, from mindfulness. Yeah, I do. It's funny. I, I remember back in the 60s when Harvey Cox wrote his book called The Secular City, which talked about how secularism was, was impacting Christianity. And I think at that time, people weren't very happy with what he wrote any more than they were happy with the death of God philosophy. Uh, but I think what, what's happening uh, today is I think people are finding that if, if you inter interpret secular Buddhism as uh, a non-monastic Buddhism, I think people are very comfortable with that because becoming a, a Buddhist monastic is, is an enormous, enormous change of life for many people. So we don't, while the monastic tradition is so critical to Buddhism, we don't find many people in the United States becoming monastics. They still lead a secular life and they, they begin to try to find how to, how to impact, how to emphasize Buddhist secular, Buddhist practice in their secular life, and they can do it. And it's very interesting because the times have changed. When, when Buddha said, for example, don't take intoxicants, it was very clear what he meant then. But I've, I've met Zen masters now who will sit down and have a glass of wine with dinner, and they'll say, not taking intoxicants means that you don't do something that gives you buzz or that, that disrupts your mentality. And if one glass of wine is okay, or a glass of Jack Daniels whiskey is okay, that's fine, as long as you don't overdo. When Buddha said, don't have illicit sex, he meant, do not have sexual contact with anyone who is not your spouse in any manner whatsoever, even with yourself. And now, if you look at American culture, I think people who are very significant and important Buddhists would say, it means something different today. It doesn't mean that people can't have sexuality outside of a marital relationship, but it had to be honest and open and fair and credible and not taking advantage of people and so forth. So I think we're reinterpreting Buddhist ethics in the context of secular life. And I think the vast majority of the six million Buddhists in the United States indeed are secular Buddhists. And there have been some some very interesting things that happen on the internet. There's a wonderful Buddhist website called The Secular Buddhist, run by Ted Meissner, who provides lots of really valuable impact for people who are living that secular life, who, who aren't concerned with monastic life at all. Yeah. Yeah, although there is this um, this additional element to the, the secular outlook, and, and I think Ted is involved in that, which is challenging some of the traditional teachings of Buddhism, such as reincarnation and karma, and seeking to reinterpret them from, let's say, utilizing and drawing on resources from the Western tradition, so to speak, which I think... Uh, you know, has potential, certainly does. Uh, and I wonder if that will uh, end up having some sort of meaningful role within this dialogue between convert Buddhists and, you know, Asian American Buddhists. But I, I guess we'll see. Um, I'd like to ask you another thing as well. And, you know, you can answer this question or not. Very recently, there have been quite a few scandals that have come about, you know, in communities. I think the latest one is the in the Shambhala community, which I mentioned because you, you started out by mentioning Jogyam Trungpa. You know, it's a complex issue, but I think there are perhaps some some parts of the the issue that you know people can take a, a relatively clear and unambiguous ethical position on. But I wonder if you have any thoughts on how Buddhist communities might get better at preventing and managing such scandals, and um, you know, avoiding them in the future, especially in terms of institutional failings. Well, that's really a hard question to answer because obviously I think they need to do that. There's no, there's no question that we need to tighten the ethical guidelines. And I think that means within each Buddhist community, within each center, I think you have to have uh, some kind of executive board that, that deals with that, that keeps a tighter, a tighter handle on what, what the teachers are doing. Um, back, in, back in the 70s, teachers were, in a sense, ultimate in American Buddhism. They could do anything because they were the teachers, and and no place was that clearer than with Chagam Trungpa. And, and however much I may have valued my friendship with him, and however much I may have valued the teachings that he gave me, 
there is no question that he did things that were incredibly illicit. Um, I, I remember one of the one of the first times I I had any contact with his community at all was in 1974 when I went to Naropa Institute. I went to their to their office when we got there so that they could give us the keys to the home they had rented for us for the summer. And the young woman who was dealing with my family and getting a center was, was very, very uneasy. And she seemed like something was bothering her terribly. And being the busybody uh, fellow that I am, I said, are you all right? Is something bothering you? And she said, yes, that she was really angry at Chagyam Trungpa. And I said, well, wait, you're working in this organization here at Naropa Institute. And she said, yes, I've been doing meditation under his guidance for a long, long time. And I keep wanting to get a five-minute private interview with him because I need to talk about his my teaching, his teaching. And he won't give me a five-minute interview. But on the other hand, I've been sleeping with him. Huh. And I thought that was really, whether that's true or not, I don't know, mm-hmm. certainly. But at the time, it struck me as very odd that a student would, would acknowledge that she was sleeping with the meditation teacher. I know that in the aftermath of of John Dinalori's death at Zen Mountain Monastery, the person that took over Conrad was married to one of the other people at the monastery, and he was dismissed by the monastery for doing similar kinds of things. So it's a, it's a rampant problem. And I think the same was true with Meizumi Roshi and so forth. And I think the only way to do that is to tighten up the controls that each community has on its leadership. And I think they're doing that to some degree, but they're not doing it effectively yet. So I think it's going to take some time, but I think there's very much more awareness today. So I think it will happen. I hope it will happen. Yeah, yeah, of course. I just wonder, I wonder to what degree it will be possible to do that meaningfully without destabilizing or at least challenging this, this traditional idea of the, the omniscient, all-knowing teacher. I think that's an interesting challenge that, that many of these communities are facing. And I think it brings up interesting questions about the way the next generation of practitioners and teachers think about roles, think about authority and transmission and so forth. But, uh, it's certainly a big mess, and uh, you know, I, I wish them all the best of luck with it. And uh, yeah, hopefully, we'll see some change uh, come along. With such a long history of engagement with Buddhism, both as a practitioner and scholar, do you have a critique, perhaps, that you could make of Buddhism, or a limitation or failing of it? If we think about its its role in the West, the role it's had on practitioners. Do you see, have you seen a limitation to it, which you think perhaps uh, has been difficult for it in becoming a, a greater or more powerful force of change or presence in the West? I don't think the problem with, is with Buddhism as a religious tradition. I think the problem is with the people who choose to practice it. And I think if they practice Buddhism in the context in, in which it was created, even adjusted to the difference in the 20th century, uh, I think there wouldn't be quite the issues that there are. I think we have significant problems in American culture with um, emotional laxity and spiritual laxity and not having rigorous ethical practices. But I think that's, that's not the issue of the Buddhist tradition. The Buddhist tradition is very clear on how to practice. Uh, I think how we interpret it may, may be differently. And I think in, in some cases, some of what I've done is people would think is, is a little crazy, but I try to interpret it in a way that makes it more manageable for them so that they really could integrate the practice of, of Buddhism in a meaningful way. For example, um, if you go into almost any classroom where Buddhism is being taught, people will sooner or later, usually sooner, get to talking about the Four Noble Truths because that's a classic doctrine of Buddhism. And they will say, starting off, that all life is, in the Sanskrit word, dukkha. And dukkha is almost always, almost always translated to be suffering. And that that means that the, the people that are teaching this are Buddhists telling us that all life is suffering. Well, if you fast forward to 20th century modern America, I don't think people can justifiably or easily say that their life is all suffering. Because most people have enough money or they have enough love, or they have enough friendship, or they have enough education, or they have enough side interests. And I don't think to imagine that every moment of every life of every person is suffering really speaks to what the Buddhist tradition is trying to tell them. So I, before I retired, I would walk into class and tell them 
then I think that when, when Buddhists say that all life is dukkha, what they really mean is that while all life is basically okay, all life is slightly out of whack. So for me, I tell them that dukkha means out of whackness. And that even though we have a lot of these things, something just seems a little bit off. But that little bit off is what keeps us from being full and whole and complete living in the present moment. And I've tried to interpret the Four Noble Truths in a way that makes it understandable. When Buddhism says the second noble truth is that the cause of dukkha is trishna or craving, I try to make it clear to Buddhists, Buddhist practitioners or a student that to really understand Buddhism means that as long as your ego maintains control over you and the two chief words of your vocabulary are I want, you're always going to have tukka. That you, you have to move away from the, the saying I want. And you know, it's interesting, one of the more popular American Buddhist teachers is a fellow named Lama Surya Das. And he has said that Instead of Americans, instead of really understanding the three jewels of Buddhism uh, to be going to the Buddha, going to the Dharma, and going to the Sangha, he thinks the three jewels of American Buddhism are me, myself, and I. <laughs> and, and that we're trapped into that profound sense of egoness that makes us want more everything instead of simply saying that what we have is quite satisfactory and I need to live in the present moment accepting the fact but that's simply the way things are. That doesn't mean not doing ethical practice, but it means maybe a little less money is okay. It's where you are to, to deal with that in a, in a constructive fashion. Um, and to understand that you can cease that craving and, and dukkha by simply doing the Eightfold Path. And you can reinterpret the Eightfold Path in a modern context. You can talk about right speech in a modern context and if you do that, I think Buddhist practice becomes very manageable and very reasonable. And it's not the religious tradition that needs the adjustment, it's the people that follow it. When you tell someone to do right speech, and that means don't tell any lies under any circumstances to anyone, including yourself, that's pretty tough. Oh yeah. But you, but you can do it. And when you do it, you find that your life becomes significantly less complicated. And in the less complicated life, it becomes much more manageable to engage other parts of Buddhist practice. I used to walk into my class and ask, ask my students, what is the very last thing you do before you leave your apartment or your dorm room before you come to class every day? And they would all start to get very fidgety. And I would say, I bet that some of you, before you came here today, looked in the mirror and said to yourself, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And the answer your mirror gives back to you is, well, of course you are. Look at you. You look wonderful. And then I would look at the class and say, why don't we all take around, a look around and tell us how many of us really look all that wonderful? Maybe the start of the day is to look in the mirror and say, as I say, you're old or you're a little too fat or this is a little off. And be honest with yourself so that you can then go forth into the world not fooling yourself about anything. And once you do that, your life becomes significantly less complicated. You don't have to remember all the lies you told to all the different people. You can just tell the truth all the time and life becomes easy. And I don't think they like hearing that, but I think that's the sort of thing that needs to become uh, more applicable to modern Western Buddhist teaching. Okay. So you talked a little bit before about the um, the challenges to the the original theory of the two Buddhisms that you came up with and hybrid Buddhism and so forth. Are there any other areas of development in modern contemporary Buddhist studies that you think are particularly interesting? Apart from the challenges that say of departments and um, some departments of religious studies perhaps closing their Buddhist studies programs, in terms of areas of exploration and developments, where do you see the field going? And again, what do you see as the most interesting developments taking place? Given the fact that the worldwide or even in the West, there there's still so many Buddhist scholars. There are some who work with, with doing textual exegesis um, there are some who deal with the social aspects of Buddhism. There are some who talk about socially engaged Buddhism, which we haven't discussed here. Um, 
if, if someone picks up one of the one of the works of Thich Nhat Hanh or his explanations in the book by Chris Queen, who's probably the, the foremost American scholar on socially engaged Buddhism, there's so many areas that are being explored, and they are all being explored. That that that's clearly that's clearly valuable, and I don't I don't think I don't think that's going going to change very much. So I'm not I'm not sure exactly how how to answer that question. What I would add to it is I think I think there's one thing missing that maybe contextualizes how we understand the work of scholars and especially scholar practitioners in American Buddhism. I need to back up a little bit. When I was a young man coming up and, and working on the early Indian Buddhist tradition, I read the works of Louis de la Vallée Poussin, Marcel Hofinger, Etienne Lamotte, Eric Frau Wallner, and my, my personal hero, André Barreau. They were great, brilliant scholars who worked with Buddhist texts and informed all the work that I did. But I think I could have known so much more about them and their work and appreciated it if I knew a little about them. And none of them ever wrote about themselves. So one of the things I've done in my retirement recently is I've started a project called The Generations of Buddhist Studies. And I sent a note of invitation out to about 170 very senior, well-known Buddhist scholars throughout the world. And I asked them to write one long chapter of biographical reflection on their career. What, why they got into Buddhist studies, what they did study, how they think their work has impacted Buddhist studies, what they think Buddhist studies needs to do in the future, your question, what Buddhist studies needs to do to move forward. But in addition to that, how it's impacted them personally. Who are their, their good colleagues? Who are their rivals? How has their family influenced their work? Anything they wanted to write in a freewheeling way that would give us a sense of who they are, not just as scholars, but as people. And in the context of learning about them as people, we could maybe contextualize their work, and future, future Buddhist studies scholars could contextualize their work in a way that wasn't available to my generation of scholars. Well, it turns out about 100 of the 170 people I wrote to said, what a great idea, we'll do that. And they've started coming in. I have about two dozen of them so far. And they're absolutely brilliant chapters. So I'm getting chapters from magnificent scholars um, like John Powers. I don't know if you know who that is. Uh, John Powers teaches in Australia. He was educated here. Um, but just an absolute brilliant chapter that gives us a sense of who this magnificent scholar is. And others just like that. So that, And I promised that I wouldn't edit their work. That whatever they wrote would be just as they wrote it. The only thing I would correct is typos. So that people could see who they are. And it's, and it's interesting because it's, it's a tricky business. Some of the people have written me notes and say, well, will you post a few of these when you get them? And I said, no, I'm not posting them until I have them all. Because if I post them, you'll try to do what the other people have done instead of being totally yourself and just say those things that you haven't been able to say anywhere and know that unlike the copy editors who torture your work and make it different, I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to publish exactly what you've done. And I worked on an arrangement with Chuck Muller, I don't know if you know who that is. Chuck Muller is the, is the founder and editor of the H Buddhism website. And when I have them all, he's going to create an archive on the H Buddhism website where we can post all of these chapters and they will be up there for the younger new scholars to read, for us older people to read, and for people to add to them as they wanted. So as we move into the future, people will get a sense of where these great scholars feel the, the profession should go. And, you know, as I said, I think it should move more away from simply translating Buddhist text and talking how, how Buddhism manifests itself in the world as a practice, as a philosophy, how the various communities of Buddhism engage with, with each other. How does global Buddhist dialogue change everything? And for me, that, that's probably one of the things that's, that changes Buddhism the most, that Maybe years ago, Gary Ray was right when he said, there's nothing holier than a Buddhist in Alabama. But now, if you're a Buddhist in Alabama and you're going to Australia, 
you can go to the buddhanet.net website and you can find a world Buddhist directory and it'll tell you places in Australia where you can go, where you can find someone with the same sectarian affiliation that you have and you won't be alone and you won't be lonely. You can find out what's happening in any place in the world because the global Buddhist dialogue is, is overwhelming. You can talk to Buddhists anywhere. And I think that's where Buddhism needs to be headed and is headed in the future. Mm -hmm.